Now he, the Lord, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Nadab and Abihu being the sons of Aaron, and 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood, put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. We often think of the new covenant with Jesus Christ being the blood of the covenant. Because, of course, there at the Last Supper, during the Passover feast, Jesus took the bread and said, This is my body broken for you, and drink this cup. This is my body shed for you. And it's symbolic of his blood being shed for us. We know that without the shedding of the blood, there can be no remission or forgiveness of sins. The Bible tells us that. And we'll also see, as we progress in Leviticus, that the life of every creature is in the blood. And we know that the wages of sin is death. So we understand that with animal sacrificial system in the Old Testament and then Jesus fulfilling all that in the New Testament, that one who's innocent dies for one who's guilty. And we see that covenants are established with blood, well, the Abrahamic covenant was, and here too, the Mosaic covenant, as this is known, the covenant God is making with the nation of Israel. So it's worth noting that it's a covenant, a promise between God and the people, a relationship, a covenant, an agreement, an accord, and it's established with blood. And we often don't think of that with this particular covenant. I mean, we think of the Passover lamb and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but actually, literally, with the giving of the law and the explaining of the law in its preliminary form, Moses gets up early in the morning. He builds the altar. He sets up the 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel, all inclusive for the people of covenant as a nation. And they begin the animal sacrifices, the young men. And Moses puts it all down. And then he makes, this is the blood. He states, this is the blood of the covenant, which is the Lord had made with you according to, this, to these words. Again, even in this covenant, this Old Testament covenant, Mosaic covenant, it is built upon the reality of sin and how to deal with sin and to bring sinful humanity into a relationship with holy God. We'll see even more of that tonight as we go forward. So this is the blood of the covenant. There has to be blood. There has to be blood in this covenant because the covenant between God and man is going to always have to deal with the issue of sin separating, which is the consequence, which is death, and that someone, something has to die to bring humanity and man, excuse me, humanity and God together. And in this case, it's a prelude or a shadow of what Christ will do, which, of course, the law is and the Old Testament, everything pointing toward Christ. But this is the blood of the covenant. We're reminded that Somebody innocent has to die. And on this morning, it was the bulls and the goats, uh, the oxen, and they, they were sacrificed, which could never take away sin, but their blood is used to initiate this covenant. Blood 
We're under the blood. And we cover that, of course, when we did the whole application with the Passover lamb. We read on in verse 9. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, paid work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and the commandments I've written that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has difficulty, let him go to them. Then Moses went into, up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on the mountain, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now we know that no one has ever seen God at any time. Abba Father, God the Father. And we know that if we see the Lord, we would die. We're told that in the Old Testament. So when we read here that, we, that they saw the God of Israel, we, would, we could say that they saw the form of God, perhaps, or uh, something presenting the presence of God. But to seeing God like God in full clarity on his throne, that's not what it means here. But they did see enough of God in his glory to see a description of this work of sapphire stone paved underneath them. Again, we talk about this when we're talking about heaven and eternity, that Eternity transcends time. And so whenever you have God appearing in glory in time, space, and matter, as we know it and are living in it right now, it's a whole other dimension being revealed to us that just supersedes this dimension. And it's hard for our finite minds to understand what this would be like. So when we read this glory, just like if you're reading it in the morning in your morning devotion, and you're like, wow, like, wow, that's crazy. But no, really, his glory because we in Revelation 4, where his glory is described to us, the rainbow of his throne and these things. And it's a glory that we can't even, we just can't even comprehend. Whatever glory we think we've seen in the human experience, however long we live, we haven't seen anything like this glory. And so the people were able to see his glory in this sense at this moment, on this day, in this time, in this space, with the matter that was around them. Them being, you know, literally matter as they're there. And it's glorious. And we read that his glory was there, his glory was there. So on this particular day in human history, God chose to reveal his glory in a special way to the nation of Israel. It's amazing. But again, if we're looking for emotional experiences with the Lord, that alone will not carry us because in less than 40 days, they're going to make a golden calf from the, the jewelry that Aaron's going to carve out for them and, and Moses is going to break the Ten Commandments. He's going to break the tablets when it comes down. So if it's all about emotion and what we see and the glory we're not going to make it. But it has to be about faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And those who come to him must believe that he is. And he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we got to have faith. And we're told that we're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. And it is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen. So if God ever shows you his glory like this in your lifetime, awesome. Awesome for you. But that experience is never going to substitute the necessity of living by faith until you get to the finish line, breathing your very last on the last day you have. But it is special, and I'm 
It's a, it's a wonderful experience God gave them as the glory of the Lord rested upon the mountain, verse 16. And he told Moses, I'm going to give you my word and you're going to teach the people. So as the mediator of the covenant, he was going to receive from God and he was going to teach on behalf of God for the people. And we're told he was the mediator of a covenant. We also know that Jesus, as the son of God, is the mediator of a better covenant, the lasting covenant. And we are told that he revealed the heart of the Father to all humanity. So we know that he reveals all that God would say to humanity. The Father is spoken through the Son as the mediator of the new and everlasting covenant for us. We do see here in the last part of this passage, it says in verse 18, that Moses went up into the midst of the cloud in the mountain, and he was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, many of you might be aware that Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. It's a pretty famous fact of the Bible that many people are aware of. So 40 days and 40 nights. We do get those interesting numbers even in this passage, like the 12 tribes, the 40 days, seven days. God has numbers, and he has different things that we see as we go through these books of Moses where he puts numbers out there that seem to have significance, and they repeat themselves in the New Testament. For example, the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles being just one of them. And as Moses was 40 days on the top of the mountain, Jesus was 40 days tempted in the wilderness to redeem us from the consequence of sin in his battle with Satan and with the battle for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Where Adam failed, Jesus, the second Adam, was successful. His was a 40-day fast with the Father, preparing for the ministry. And here we have Moses, 40 days on the mountain, the two mediators of different covenants, one a shadow of things to come, but Christ fulfilling it. So 40 days and 40 nights. But this does bring up a good point. We've been talking about this in the context of COVID-19 and the stay in order. For the first time, many of us in our life, in our lives, it's been 10 weeks, have been forced to not go to work in some cases or to be working. Now, some people are working more than they've ever worked during COVID-19. We've talked about this as well. Some people, through various circumstances, God has called them to step up and work more than ever. For example, like people, maybe doctors and nurses and hospital staff and people like that. that that's quite possible. I do believe in ministry, believe it or not, and I would imagine even in non-Christian religious groups, people are probably working more than normal. I can speak for myself that I ha more has been required of me during COVID-19 than pre-COVID, and so I've been talking about this as pre-COVID, COVID, and post-COVID, and we're in COVID, moving toward post-COVID, I think, but pre-COVID looked a certain way, and COVID looked another way, and as we've been trying to and seeking the Lord to expand the ministry here at Worship Generation during this time, it's required more of me. It's required me to be sharper, stronger, more focused with the Lord, tighter, just more dialed in, and definitely not autopilot. There's no, there's no cruise control right now. So for me, it's required more. But like many of you, I certainly had weeks where I, in a sense, stayed at home. I just didn't really go out much. And we all began to appreciate what it's like when you read about Paul being under house arrest in the end of the book of Acts, chapter 28, or when he's writing from prison to the Philippians and things like that. And I think that most of us, almost all of humanity, in some capacity, have a better sense of what it's like to be forced to be still. We live in a very busy world, a lot of noise, a lot of white noise, a lot of commotion, you know, busy, busy, dreadfully busy with many things. But most of us, in some ways, at some times, or perhaps in major ways, because honestly, we know a lot of people lost their jobs. They were furloughed and then let go. 
and they've gotten one check from the government, and maybe now they're getting unemployment, and we know that unemployment is probably paying better than if they had their job, if they had lower end jobs, we understand that, we know that, but at some point that's gonna end. And so it's been really unusual in that human beings have been put in a place of being quiet and one-on-one -on -one with the Lord, not the least of which is what's left of the greatest generation, which is my father's generation. All these elderly people that we know and we love and care about, say maybe 80 and above, particularly those like my father in his, who's turned 90, my father has been in a room by himself for 10 weeks. Now my dad grew up a latchkey kid in Wisconsin uh, at a boarding house at the University of Wisconsin where both of his parents worked to make it during difficult times during the Depression. Then his father went away to serve with the 4th Marine Division with the Red Cross in World War II for three, almost three years. My dad went to the University of Wisconsin, joined the Marines, served in Korea, served in Vietnam, career Marine, all these things. And all that my dad ever faced in life, and he did live on his own after my parents got divorced back in the late 70s, but the family still came around. The relationships were still uh, copacetic between my mom and my dad. Neither one remarried. My dad would go to Charger games. They had all these friends. They hung out with the Charger games. My dad was social and had all these people. And I think of my dad right now. Think of maybe your elderly parents. I've been thinking about people that are elderly like in Russia or India and these other places. What's it like for them if they're in shutdown? I know particularly in Russia, they really shut down the elderly if you're not aware of that during COVID-19. They're about two weeks behind us, but they locked everybody in and said you can't go out, particularly the older people. So this entire generation whether they were raised during the Soviet Union time or, like my dad, in a sense, fighting what the Soviet Union stood for in the Korean War and the Vietnam War, they're all 90, and they're all by themselves, most of them. I go wave my dad through the window. We talk for five minutes, ten minutes. There's not a lot you can say through the window except, I'm still alive, I love you, see my new mask, and, you know, you call him, nothing changes. How's the food? It's still good. What's the news? It's still the same. You know what I'm saying? Like, so it's hard. And he's one-on-one. -on -one. So I keep trying to direct my dad to be drawing near to the Lord at this time when it's just him by himself in a room day after day after day. Now, my dad has a nice window they can look out. He sees Huntington Beach High School, the Bell Tower there, Civic Center across Yorktown. So he sees life going by, people walking by, headed for Albertsons or something, or, you know, Panera, whatever it is. He sees it. But it, it's just, it's, it's surreal. And I just keep thinking, the Lord has allowed my dad to be alone. Alone. At this time, right before he steps into eternity. His final chapter. And that's between him and the Lord. As it is between you and the Lord. Because Moses was alone with God for 40 days. Alone with God. 40 days on top of the mountain. And here in COVID-19, many of us have been alone with the Lord for even more than 40 days. It's something to think about. It's perspective. Moses had a busy life. He had a wife that he had contention with. He had adult children. He's actually going to marry someone else, which we'll get to that when we get to it. Moses was a real person. He struck the rock once, gave water a second time, or he is supposed to talk to it, he yelled at it, he struck it again, and kept them from going to the promised land. He had to lead these people that, with unbelief for 38 years in the wilderness and watch them all die, everyone over 20. He is a real person. 
He's going to face things out for this. That, but he was alone with God for 40 days. Alone with God for 40 days. I think it's important that we understand the value of being alone with God one-on-one. Some people don't like to be alone at all. And we're designed to have interrelationships. So obviously we're not really designed. The Bible says a man who isolates himself is not wise in Proverbs. But nonetheless, to be alone with the Lord is important. That's how Jesus began his ministry, 40 days with his father in the wilderness. So I would encourage us, there's a really good application that comes from this, that if the lawgiver spent 40 days alone with the father to receive the word of God, to lead the people of God for the next 40 years, then I think we need to embrace the alone time that God has for us with him in this time. Again, it might be hectic. You might have a homeschool family and they're all at home and you just thought it's been anything but alone with the Lord. We'll make time to be alone with the Lord. We don't need COVID-19 to tell us to be alone with the Lord. The scripture tells us to make time to be alone with the Lord. And none of us are perfect and none of us are ever going to be perfect, but we can be alone with the Lord. And anything can become an opportunity to be with the Lord. In Elizabeth Elliot's book on loneliness, after her second husband died of cancer, she wrote about a whole book about how loneliness is a special time with the Lord. To be alone is to have a special time with the Lord. And I would imagine there are many people that are very uh, lonely right now and alone with the Lord. And I would just say, like Elizabeth Elliot, who's now in glory, would say, make that an offering to be with the Lord, to truly be with the Lord, because we're going to be with the Lord in eternity. So if we're alone now, we can be alone with the Lord, which is how I've been trying to direct my father and anyone like that in that situation, that to prepare them for stepping into eternity. So what I'm saying is to get away with the Lord during COVID-19 and make it a sanctified time with the Lord is a really good idea. And as I've said all along, we cannot come out of COVID-19 being less of who we were meant to be in the Lord. We need to be more of who we're meant to be in the Lord. And that's what going up the mountain for 40 days will do when you're Moses with the Lord. So we need to embrace that and we need to grow in that. Remember, Moses had a glory when he came down and he had to veil the glory, but his was a passing glory, but we're going from glory to glory. So ours is actually the opposite. Ours is an emerging glory. So when we're with the Lord, we have the Shekinah glory and we don't veil it and it can increase more and more. And that's what we need to do. That's our application from that. Now we read on in chapter 25. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone, give it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. This is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair, ram skins, dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for sweet incense, unic stones, and stones be set in the ephod of the breastplate that would be for the high priest, Aaron, his outfit. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you that is the pattern of the tabernacle and pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So here's this offering, and it says, from everyone who gives willingly with his heart. It's always good to be reminded, even particularly in the Old Testament, that God is a triple giver, and God doesn't do things by compulsion. We're not robots. He's not fatalistic in his purpose in making us and our destiny. He is sovereign, and we make choices. And he's not going to force us to love him back. 
He's going to woo us with his love of the gospel, the grace, and who he is and what he's done for us. But we can choose to reciprocate and respond to that love. We love him because he first loved us. And it's the same thing with just whatever he wants to do in our life. If he's, he's not going to really force you to do what you're not willing to do. He said, many are called, few are chosen. And we want to be willing. And if we have an opportunity to give, we can give. But we don't ever want to give by compulsion. And this, again, is reaffirmed the New Testament that we're not to give begrudgingly. So if it's our time, our energy, our resources, we give because we want to. And, and we give willingly. And there's nothing more joyful than giving willingly. That's a joyful thing to just want to give and share of your time, your resources, and your energy. It's the most joyful thing you can do is lose your life for the Lord and give it to the Lord and, and give it in service to other people. It's, it's a great thing to lose your life and to sow your life for the kingdom as unto the Lord. But I just love how it says, for everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. We don't serve the Lord out of a robotic, artificial intelligence religion. We serve the Lord out of a loving relationship. And we do so willingly in the best of times and the most challenging of times. We serve him willingly and we give willingly. And just, it's good to be reminded of that. We'll get more of this later on as we go forward in Exodus when they actually bring the gifts. We pick it up in verse 10. And they shall make, so now we get the instructions for what's going to go in the tabernacle. And they shall make an ark of, and of course the tabernacle is their central place of worship, which you saw there in verse 9. We're, we're going to have a whole lot of that coming up. So the tabernacle is going to be like their church, their central place of worship, and these are the elements and the things that go in it. Verse 10. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits shall be its length. So a cubit is generally considered 18 inches. So this is about, you know, three and a half feet. You know, the Ark of the Covenant, about three and a half feet. Shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it. Shall make it on its molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in the four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the Ark that the Ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark of the testimony what I give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits will be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, cherubim being angels. Hammered work, you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherub at the two ends of its one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubs shall stretch out their wings above the covering, and the cherubs shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. And the faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I'll give you. That's the Ten Commandments. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are the ark of the testimony above everything which I give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So this is the famous ark of the covenant. Never found, by the way, as an archaeological element. Many things have been found of archaeology from the Old Testament, but you know, a lot of people have looked for this, and it would be the crown jewel of all things ever to be found in archaeology is the ark of the covenant. So the ark of the covenant, you know, it's like a chess, it was overlaid with pure gold inside and out, the poles to carry it with pure gold, and the Ten Commandments would go in it. Eventually, Aaron's rod that blossomed, the almond blossoms will go in it, as will the jar of manna will go in it, and the, 
the re reboot on the Ten Commandments after Moses breaks the first set, another set is given, and they go in there, and that's what's inside the Ark of the Covenant. That's the Ark of the Covenant. And then the mercy seat, of course, speaking of Jesus, who is that mercy, you know, the throne of mercy, the throne of grace, between God's holy perfection through the law and our inability to come to him that way. And then the angels. So there's just such a glorious thing here described to us of the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant. And there it is. And there God says, I will meet with you. Now we know it, as they went forward and into the promised land, with the tabernacle for centuries, and then when they built the temple, that the high priest, of which Aaron is the first, he would go in once a year on Yom Kippur, Feast of Tabernacles. I just taught it in detail on Saturday, but I didn't really talk about actually what took place on Yom Kippur. But on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he would go into the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. We'll get a little more of that before we finish tonight. And he would, they had the two scapegoats, and the one scapegoat would be killed, and that blood would be sprinkled on the ark right here in the Holies of Holies for the high priest's sins and then for the sins of the people. So the high priest is a sinner, and he sprinkles blood for his sins, and he sprinkles blood on behalf as an intercessor for the people. Now remember, Jesus is our great high priest who ever lives and intercedes for us. So that's very, typology, very much of a typology of Jesus Christ, the high priest. And that's why we're told in Hebrews, the priesthood of Jesus is superior to the Leviticus priesthood because his is according to the order of Melchizedek, not according to this one, these men, descendants of, of Aaron, the high priest. So he would do that, but then they'd take the other scapegoat, confess the sins of the people over it, and then release it into the Judean wilderness. That all happened on Yom Kippur. And the flashpoint was the Ark of the Covenant. So listen very carefully. The Ark of the Covenant was in the most holy place representing God's presence and could only be approached once a year by the high priest. And it was approached with blood for his forgiveness of sins and blood on behalf of the forgiveness of the sins of the people that he stands in the gap for. There's the mercy seat and the blood. So this is that Ark of the Covenant. Now, in the book of Judges, there's like a superstitious thing about, like, you know, we've got the Ark, we win, so we show up, it's like our shrine, and we're going to win this battle with the Philistines because we have the Ark of the Covenant. And you know, we can reduce things to superstition or lucky charms or whatever when you force it, when you make it about the instrument instead of the one who's behind it, which, of course, is the Lord. But the Ark of the Covenant, amazing. God set it up, and we're told in Hebrews these things are a pattern of things in heaven. And it's pure gold, and we know that gold is the color of heaven. And I've talked about this in times past, but I've also often been fascinated with the value of gold as a measuring standard in human history for economies and commerce and food, water, military, mercenaries, whatever. And it, it really doesn't make a lot of sense because you can't eat gold and it's, just, it's, a, it's an appeal to the eye, but it really, it just doesn't have the same, if, there, if there's a famine, the wheat fields of the Ukraine are going to feed you more than the gold in the, the vaults of Moscow. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just, it just, it's crazy. But there's something about gold that it becomes the stability behind a currency or an economy of a country. And that's certainly how we were back in the day before Woodrow Wilson changed those laws and we became a fiat currency, which is a whole other, it's a different thing. But nonetheless, gold is interesting because, so I, my, I have a theory on gold that the reason gold is such a measuring rod and a safe haven when economies are collapsing and currencies going hyperinflation. I believe it's because gold is the color of heaven. That's the best I can do, and I think it's 
I think it's a good position. Why else would gold have value to us the way, and even now, particularly in 2020, gold has very minimal value other than the sight that it sees, but it's the metal of heaven. Gold is streets of gold in heaven. When they're told to make this, it's a pattern of things in heaven. So God created this metal on earth that transcends dimensions because it's the metal in the next dimension that involves his throne room and his glory. And I think that's why gold is something that human beings all go back to as a reference points of value by which you measure all other experiences in the human experience throughout human history. I mean, that's my explanation. Either way, it's the metal of heaven. We read on. Verse 23. You shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around it. You shall make it for a frame of hand breadth all around, and you shall make gold molding for the frame all around. And you shall make it for four rings of gold. Put the rings in the four corners that are its four legs. The rings shall be to close the frame as holders make for poles to bear the table. Remember, they carry these things throughout the wilderness for the 40 years of wandering. And you shall make all the poles of acacia wood, verse 28, and overlay them with gold, that the table may be carried with them, and you shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. So we'll see as we get into the tabernacle next chapter that, you know, it's a tent. You know, it's a rectangular length tent, and the back third of it is essentially the Holy of Holies, and the veil will be between where the Ark of the Covenant is, but it's still indoors, and then on this side of the veil is the altar of incense, the lampstand, and the showbread, these three things. So the priest would go in and service these things regularly, but behind the Holy of Holies, only once a year, the high priest. So this is how God set up the worship in the Mosaic Covenant. And again, we talk about the religious law, we have the moral law, the civil law, the religious law. This is the religious law of how God's going to be worshipped by his people. And it all points to Christ. One way or another, it all points to Jesus and who he is. So when you think about the showbread, Jesus himself said he's the bread of life. And bread is very symbolic and representative and even described as such as a sustenance for the human experience in the flesh. We need bread. And Jesus said, your fathers ate man in the wilderness, but on the bread of life that comes down from heaven. Unless you eat of me, you will perish. They're like, what? Like, what? But again, there in John chapter 6, he's talking spiritual things and trying to elevate them to understand the physical things as it relate to the spirit, just like the living water. So Jesus, they would change that bread regularly, the showbread. But even as we know with David, when he ate the showbread fleeing from Saul, that, again, the bread is not superstitious, not lucky bread. It represented something, but the fullness of what represented is Jesus Christ being the one who meets our every need and fulfills our sustenance of our soul. Not to mention our daily bread. Anyways, he's our provider. We read on verse 31, and you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. Its lampstand shall be on hammered work. A lot of details here with the lampstand. It's, if you've ever seen a picture of the lampstand, it's beautiful. Just, it's a beautiful, you can Google it right now on your phone or whatever. You know, you can, back in the day when I taught these things back in the early 90s, I had to get like a book, print out pictures at the copier, and then hand them out at church in 1992 teaching Exodus. Now I can just tell you, hey, you can glue it on your phone faster than I can even finish this segment of scripture, what this lampstand looked like. It's beautiful, the artwork. So he says here, 
You shall make a lampstand of pure gold, verse 31 again. The lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shafts, its branches, its bowls, its ornament knobs. Flowers shall be of one piece, and the six branches shall come out of its side. Three branches of the lamp stand out of one side. Three branches of the lamp stand out the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornament knob and a flower, and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornament knob and a flower. And so, for the six branches that come out of the lampstand on the lampstand itself... Four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with ornament knobs and flowers. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be one piece. All of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it. They shall arrange the lamps so that they give light in front of it. And its wick trimmers, their trays, shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of town of pure gold with all these utensils. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So now the lampstand, again, we go back to the Gospel of John. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And so here, again, all these things symbolically, one way or another, indirectly or directly pointing to Jesus Christ for who he is, what he does, what he's done, where he's at, and what he's going to do. So there, the showbread and the lampstand. Now, the altar of incense would also be there. We'll get more of the altar of incense uh, later. But notice this last verse, verse 40. See that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on heaven. This is an application that's going to keep coming up as we go forward in the books of Moses, according to the pattern, according to the pattern. Now, I'm not a detailed person like this. Um, my son, Timmy, when he would build Legos, he's absolutely, every single piece had to be exactly the way it was. Where when Luke would build a Lego, he'd just, just wing it, you know? And we're all different. And, and like some of us are really good with details. Some of us are more creative. Some are more like details, details, details. When we had some work going on in our house, we had a young man from Australia, Caleb's his name. His parents are in ministry down in uh, the Narrabeen area of Sydney. But he... Like all young Aussies, he learned to trade, and his trade was carpentry work. And when he would do carpentry work, I was just amazed at how skillful he was with the details, exactly everything, all the tools that he had, details, details, details. Pastor Chuck was a detail guy. He, when he built Green Valley and all that, he was up there setting beams and doing all that stuff when he was in his 70s because he loved to build and he loved details. Me, I'm just like, man... It's almost like when guys would make surfboards and explain to me how they're doing the thickness and the width. I'll be like... Just just give me the board when it's done. I just never was that kind of guy. So maybe you, you look at this artwork and you think, this is amazing. Now, I can look at a piece of artwork and just go, that's beautiful. Like, I appreciate stuff. But the whole concept, like, you have to do it like this, you have to do it like that. I just like, oh. You know, it's like preparing to open after COVID-19. I get the 47 suggestions from the insurance company. I'm like, they all sound the same to me. After a while, what I'm reading, it's like, I can't even make distinction. So like when I'm reading about the almond branches here, I'm just like, what? Knob, knob, double knob, triple knob, quadruple knob, bloom, bloom, bloom. It's like, in my mind, it just kind of starts to sound the same, but maybe in your mind, you're artistic and your details and you see the details. I just see the end result. We're all different. But then again, I wasn't called to design these things. Busy, I will be called to do this, right? Who God gives a spirit of wisdom. Everyone has a role. I'm more like go up the mountain like Moses kind of guy, right? You're like, whoa. You know, but some, you know, but for the people who would build this, these are important details. And some of you can relate more to this than others. But either way, we need to know, make it according to the pattern that I've shown you. And for that, we can definitely all relate to that 
our lives belong to the Lord and we need to do what he shows us to do as best we can discern at all times what he's showing us to do. Draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. So he's not calling me to build some beautiful lampstand here with the almond blossoms and all that, but he is calling me to hear his voice on how to lead this church forward in the middle of COVID-19 and out of COVID-19. And that I can do uh, as I just seek him and try my best to understand and discern what he's showing and work with the leadership to accomplish those things. So we're all in this together. But I just love that phrase that you make it according to the pattern which is shown you on the mountain. And by the way, let me just say this last thing because the one thing I know I'm called to do is pastor this church and teach God's word. And so my number one objective, and there are pastors here tonight and they know this, my number one objective in teaching the Bible is always to make sure I understand the context properly the historical context as God has defined it and given it boundaries. To rightfully divide the whole word of God, to rightfully divide the word of truth, that's my number one responsibility on this planet in regards to my calling. And as Paul said, not cease to declare the whole counsel of God. So why are we studying Exodus 25 tonight in the middle of the COVID pandemic? Because this is the book God's put us in and we're going verse by verse so we can go deeper and understand these things. And as it says in Hebrews, not go in circles with like newborn babes and eating milk over and over again, but we actually advance onto eating meat and adult food with the kingdom of God. So I've not ceased to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And it would be very easy to go like, let's go soft and do some simple things, like let's do the seven I am statements. That's not what I'm called to do. This is what God's called me to do. So I'm trying to do it according to the pattern as he's shown me on the mountain. And if you're watching this, obviously you feel led to go with it. Go through it with me, too, in Exodus. I'm enjoying it. By the way, side note, when I was seeking the Lord in 1986, after my attempted suicide, going to junior college, on my own with the Lord, living in my dad's house, I grabbed the Bible, and I began to read the Bible, and I started in Genesis. I read all Genesis, like many of you know. When I got into Exodus, I was rolling until I got to this stuff. I got to this stuff, and I just kind of hit a wall, and then my sister said to me, you should read the Gospel of John. And that's when I switched to the Gospel of John. So all the more reason, we're going to just keep plowing Exodus because we do need to receive what God has for us here. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the merciful one by whom we can come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy in time of need, Hebrews 4.16. And that's why this stuff is important because they had the shadow, but we have the fullness through the Holy Spirit confirming these things to us as we rightfully divide the whole truth, God's word. Chapter 26. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle. Now, this is the central place of worship like I was talking about. You shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen, blue, purple, scarlet thread, with artistic designs of cherubim. So like artistic designs of angels. You shall weave them. God wants us to think heavenly, that there's angels, special beings that look out for us. They're ministering servants sent to help us in our journey. They're there. They're all powerful. They're, they're aliens to our world, but they're good aliens. They come from the dimension, the throne room of God. Gabriel, Michael, the good angels, they're all there watching over us. And in this place of worship, the designs of the cherubim were to be woven into artistic design. And the most great works of art in human history like the Sistine Chapel and other things like that, you find angels that so often are the greatest expression of human artistic expression in this experience of time, space, and matter throughout all the generations of humanity. And I'm glad they're there for us because there's fallen angels that are definitely trying to destroy us. 
Verse 2. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the width of each curtain 4 cubits. And every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. So look at all these words. 28, these numbers. 10, 28, 4, 5. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. Verse 4. And you shall make loops of the blue yarn on the edge of the curtain of this salvage of one set and likewise you shall on the outer edge of other curtains on the second set. 50 loops. You shall make them in one curtain, and the 50 loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is on the end of the second set, that the loops may be clasped to one another. And you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that it makes one curtain. So someone's going to have the wisdom how to do this and understand these details to the detail like building a model airplane in the 60s or 70s with the glue. That's, again, Legos in the 90s. Models, plastic models with glue in the 60s and 70s growing up. So these details, like just you can picture, like when you, did you ever build models? Did anyone grow up building models? I built models. We used to go to the commissary on base, not the commissary, but the PX, and we get the models. And my dad, we'd buy like this, like a B-52 or something. And these different models, like a Huey helicopter. And they'd have like 200 pieces, and you had to use the glue. And the instructions were like, just, you know, like, it's like, there's like four-dimensional, like, the instructions. And my brother was very patient with this stuff. I just like, you know. But uh, we did this stuff. And that's what I think of. And I'm looking at this, like, there's like model instruction from building a plastic model plane back in the 60s and 70s. But none of you are baby boomers, so you know what I'm talking about. But it's like your 5,000 Lego piece, and that you do understand. So 50 loops, this, that, and everything else. Verse 6, and you shall make 50 clasps of gold and a couple of the curtains together with the clasps make one curtain, one tabernacle, as we said. Verse 7, you shall also make curtains of goat's hair to be a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make 11 curtains. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits and the width of each curtain, 4 cubits. And the 11 curtains shall have all the same measurements. See, so numbers, 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 details. And you shall couple the five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And you shall double over the sixth curtain at the forefront of the tent. Verse 10. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain on the outermost in one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain on the second set. You shall make 50 bronze clasps, put the clasp into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be one. The remnant that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, because there is a half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back side of the tabernacle. Details, specific. Verse 13. And a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other side of what remains of the length of the curtains of the tent shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it. You shall also make a covering of ram skins dyed red. Details for the tent. And a covering of badger skins above that. And for the tabernacle, you shall make the boards of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board. A cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. Two tenons shall be in each board for binding one to another. Thus you shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle. And you shall make the boards of the tabernacle 20 boards for the south side. You shall make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards. Again, unique, specific details. Now we've got 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards. Two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenants, verse 20. And for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there shall be 20 boards and there are 40 sockets of silver two sockets under each of the boards. For the far side of the tabernacle, westward you shall make six boards, and you shall also make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. They shall be coupled together at the bottom, and they shall be coupled together at the top by one ring. That shall be for both of them. They shall be for 
two corners. So this will be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under each of the board. Details, details, details. Verse 26. And you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards on the side of the tabernacle for the far side westward. The middle bar shall pass through the midst of the board from one end to the end, from end to end. Verse 29, you shall overlay the boards with gold, make their rings of gold as holders as for the bars, and overlay the bars with gold. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to the pattern which you were shown on the mountain. You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. And it shall be woven with the artistic design of cherubim. And you shall hang it upon the four pillars of the acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy place. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony of the most holy. You shall set the table outside the veil, the tabernacle across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south, and you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine woven linen made by a weaver. You shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood, overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be with gold, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. All right, that's a lot of details. There's gold, there's silver, there's bronze, there's artistic stuff, there's wood, there's sockets. And again, we're going to see this is very deliberate. Again, reaffirm, make it according to the pattern that I've told you. It has to be done exactly right. And we are told these things are models of things in heaven. God's details for this tabernacle eventually become the temple as built under Solomon and rebuilt under Ezra, coming back from the Babylonian captivity. Now, draw your attention, last but not least tonight, to just this phrase, the veil shall be a divider, found in verse 33. We are told in the book of Hebrews that the veil represents the flesh of Christ, that Remember, when Jesus said it is finished and he died on the cross, the veil there in the temple was torn from top to bottom because it represented that God now made a way. No one ascends, but the Son of God descended and he made a way. So the veil was torn from top to bottom when Christ said it is finished. And we're told again in Hebrews that the veil represents his flesh. So Jesus Christ died on the cross. His flesh is given for us to make open the way, not just for the high priest, but for all humanity to come because he is the way, the truth, and the life and he is the one by which we all come to the Father. He is the mediator of the better covenant and there's no other name given among heaven by which we must be saved, the name of Jesus Christ. So this is an important detail because the priest would go into the tabernacle and they could function on that two-thirds side with the showbread, the, the lamp, and the altar of incense, which we'll get to. And then, but the Holy of Holies veil... That was the separation between sinful men and holy God. But when Christ died on the cross, that veil was torn and the way was made. All the glorious gospel and the riches of the glorious gospel. Even here, 1,500 years before Christ came, in these instructions given, God is showing that his son would be the way, 
by not which just the Jews could come to salvation, but all of us could come to saving grace. And every redeemed person on this planet has believed the gospel message by confirmation of the Holy Spirit to be saved and born again, to be born anew. And it is in that faith of the gospel message of Jesus Christ that we fulfill through our faith in Jesus this understanding, this passage of this veil because he has made the way and we now come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need. The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is there from Genesis to Revelation, preceding his coming, showing his coming, and taking us toward his second coming. Praise the Lord.